The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 126, a song of ascents. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. We're in Judges. We're in Judges chapter 3. It's verses 1 through 11. This is entitled, Othniel, Israel's First Judge. Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it, namely the five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal-Hermon to the entrance of Hamat. And they were left that he might test Israel by them, to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses." Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served other gods. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel, who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and he prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim, so the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul writes about his trust in God, knowing that our sufficiency comes from him. In his words, he noted the believer's trust is through Christ, but he possibly feared that this expression wouldn't be fully understood, so he expanded on it. He points out that we are not sufficient of ourselves. If we have trust in the things of God, then they must be from God. One cannot trust in what one does not believe in. This sufficiency from God excludes thinking that it is somehow derived, as Paul says, from ourselves. In all things related to faith, God must be the source. Our faith, our hope, our trust, our reason for our works, all of it, all stem from God. Nothing that we possess in our faith can logically stem from ourselves. This does not mean that we don't have free will, though. Rather, the free will we exercise stems from God as well. He is the source of all things. 
One difference between a mature believer and those who are either weak in their faith or who have almost no faith at all is that they have come to the understanding that all things are from, for, and to God. He is absolutely sovereign, and we are living within the confines of his sovereign works over and through creation. Our text verse comes from 2 Corinthians 3, it's verses 4 through 6. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. What is the letter he's talking about? The law. With the understanding of God's sovereignty, Paul continues his thought by acknowledging that our sufficiency is from God. The gospel is from God. The conversion was from God. Growth in Christ was from God communication of the gospel to others and their reception of it is from God. If we as believers can truly accept this, then we stand in a good spot in relation to him. In the end, there should be no fear of failure, no fear of man, and no worry about the day ahead. God is directing all things according to his wisdom. We are to engage our feet with this thought in mind. Let us head out each day knowing that the Lord is already aware of all that will transpire, and he is directing our steps according to that plan. The life you have is a gift from the Lord, and it is to be used for the Lord. Use it to his glory, and don't fret about the path that you are on. He is there with you, and he will be there at the end waiting for you. Such great truths as this are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three separate thoughts for you today. The first is taught to no war. It is verses one through six. Now these are the nations which the Lord left. The opening words of the chapter give greater detail than what was stated as chapter two closed out. This is a common way that the Bible deals with a subject, first introducing it and then more fully explaining it. And these, the nations which rested Jehovah. This is how chapter 2 closed out. It said, Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them, or not. Therefore, the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. The same word used in chapter 2 is used here, yanach to leave alone, lay down, and so on. It comes from the same root as nuach, meaning to rest. He removed his hand from them at that time, not coming after them as before. Instead, they would be laid up or rested within the land, but not necessarily permanently. First one going on, that he might test Israel by them. Le nasot bam et Yisrael, to test in them Israel. The reason for this setting aside the destruction of these nations is explicitly said to be for a testing of Israel. Again, it is the same word used as in chapter 2 as it ended, nasa, meaning to test, try, tempt, and so on. This testing is to be for Israel. 
In chapter 2, it was said to find out whether they would keep the ways of Jehovah, to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Now that is further explained with the words of verse 1 continuing, that is, all who had not known any wars in Canaan. Et kal ashur lo yadu et kal michamot kanan. All who know knew all wars Canaan. The testing is tied into the thought of war. The purpose of the wars in Canaan was to eradicate the inhabitants. Therefore, the testing of obedience and keeping the ways of Jehovah includes this warfare. This can be seen from what occurred in the book of Joshua. First, Joshua was told that the Lord would be with him in the battle. That was from Joshua 1, where it says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. However, when disobedience was found in the nation, this was the result from Joshua 7. So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived. And they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Of this, Kyle rightly says, in the wars of Canaan under Joshua, therefore, Israel had experienced and learned that the power to conquer its foes did not consist in the multitude and bravery of its own fighting men, but solely in the might of its God, which it could only possess so long as it continued faithful to the Lord. This is what the subsequent generations would need to learn. To follow in the ways of the Lord is inclusive of performing in war, being obedient to the Lord's precepts and not diverting from them. Verse 2, this was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war. Verse 2 is parenthetical and it is explanatory. The Hebrew construction is quite complicated, but it bears an emphasis that falls on the first word of each main clause. It says, Rak le ma'an da'at dorot bene Yisrael le lamdan milchama. Only to end purpose, no generations, sons Israel, to teach them war. The word rak signifies a limitation. The only reason for leaving these nations was for the purpose of teaching the subsequent generations of Israel war. Think of those in the church. It's not uncommon for people to ask why the Lord doesn't just take us home and glorify us when they come to Christ. Why leave us here to go through all of the troubles of life? Because someone must teach the next generation about the Lord. Judges are in the land being raised up to lead the people in battle. Likewise, we are being raised up to lead people to the Lord and to disciple them in right doctrine. Israel fought earthly battles. Paul speaks of the spiritual warfare of the church, but the parallels are set to see the similarities between the two. 
Remember Paul's words of the text verse. He said, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Think of Israel, think of us. Joshua discovered that when Achan sinned. The nation discovered that again when the treaty with the Gibeonites was made without first consulting the Lord. The nation needed to learn that they were wholly dependent on him. Their sufficiency was not of themselves, but from God. And this was not a one-time event. It is something that had to be repeatedly taught. Verse 2 continues, at least those who had not formerly known it. Rather than it, the word is plural, them. Again, the word rak only provides the emphasis. It says, rak asher lefanim lo yadum, only who to faces, meaning before, no had known them. The plural them refers to the wars of Canaan. John Lang rightly states the following. He says, it is not for technical instruction in military science that he leaves the heathen nations in the land, but that Israel may know what it is to wage war, that without God it can do nothing against Canaan, and that having in the deeds of contemporary heroes a present counterpart of the experience of their fathers who beheld the mighty works of God, which he wrought for Israel through Moses and Joshua, it may learn humility and submission to the law. Said plainly, to learn war does not mean to become proficient at killing the enemy, but to acknowledge dependence on God, who alone can provide the victory. As Israel will learn, the consequences for not depending on the Lord, not learning this lesson of war, will be serving other nations. This lesson will be borne out time and again in the book of Judges. For Israel to learn this, a list of nations is next provided. One can see the flow if the parenthetical words of verse 2 are removed. We'll take out verse 2 and read this. Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars of Canaan. Verse 3, namely, five lords of the Philistines. The word translated as lords, seren, signifies a lord, but also an axle. Hence, the word may indicate the lord of this area is the central point upon which the city turns. It is always used in relation to the lords of the Philistines, with the exception of it being used once to describe the bronze axles of the carts in Solomon's temple. As for the name Philistine, it comes from the word palash, signifying to roll in the dust as an act of mourning. They are the grievers. Also, verse 3 continues, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamat. The names are in the singular. The whole clause reads, And all the Canaanite and the Sidonian and the Hivite dwelling Mount the Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon unto entering Hamat. Canaanite means humbled, humiliated, or subdued. Sidon comes from the word Sud, to hunt. Thus it is hunting place. As it is on the coast, it means to hunt fish, and thus fishery. Hivite means villagers, or maybe more specifically, tent villagers. A mountain, the word har, is a lot of something gathered. It is synonymous with a large but centralized group of people. Lebanon means white one, or even mountain of snow. However, it is derived from the word lavan, meaning white. This is identical to the noun lavan, meaning brick, because bricks turn white when they are fired. That word carries the connotation of works, because bricks imply the work of man as opposed to stone, which is created by God. 
Abarim provides Lord of Designation or Lord of Destruction for Baal Hermon. However, being consistent with the translation of Hermon from elsewhere, it would be Lord of Sacred, meaning that which is set apart as in designation. Hamath means defense or citadel. Verse 4, and they were left that he might test Israel by them. More exactly, the words read, and were to test in them Israel. It is through the leaving of these people groups that Israel was to be tested. Would they rely on the Lord? Would they be obedient to him? This is next explicitly stated. Verse 4 continues, to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded to their fathers by the hand of Moses. A verb here is used as a noun, to know the obeying commandments, Jehovah, which commanded their fathers in hand, Moses. The testing is through war with these nations. Again, it is not for Israel's education and military prowess, but for their understanding concerning the effects of war in victory or in defeat. If Israel obeys, they will prosper against their enemies. When they don't, they will suffer the consequences of their disobedience through the wars waged against them. As such, verse 5, thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Rather, the word Canaanite appears to be used as all-encompassing. That is then subdivided into the individual people groups, all of which are in the singular. And sons Israel dwelt in midst the Canaanite, the Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Of those not already described, Hittite means terror, terrible, or fearsome. Amorite, talkers, active, or renown in the passive. Parasite is villager or dweller in an open country. Jebusite means treading down in the active or trodden underfoot in the passive. This is not the same as the listing of the people groups in verse 3. Those were bordering peoples who Israel would engage in war. These listed here are those dwelling in Canaan. Israel dwelt in the midst of them. The John Lang commentary notes that this verse introduces the second major part of the book of Judges, noting the history of Israel under the judges, a history of sin ever repeating itself and of divine grace, constantly devising new means of deliverance. Meanwhile, however, the imperfections of the judicial institute display themselves and prepare the way for the appointment of a king. While dwelling in the midst of these people groups, it next says, verse 6, And they took their daughters to be their wives, and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. Sounds just like Genesis chapter 6 in the Nephilim. The failings of Israel in relation to the law are highlighted in these words when contrasted to those of Moses. For example, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, here it is, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly, but thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. 
This generation has grown up apart from the leadership of Joshua. They failed to heed the warnings set forth by the Lord and Joshua, and they have departed from following the Lord. Therefore, they will learn through war what it means to not be obedient. The consequences for their failure will be the result. With verses 5 and 6 concluded as an introduction to this major section, the pulpit commentary says the following. Chapter 3, 7 through 11. This section introduces us into the actual narrative of the book of Judges. So far from this point and the sermons that I have typed, it has been fantastic. I get excited every Monday at the treasures that are found in the coming sermons. Marvelous. The prefatory matter being now concluded. The whole book proceeds on the same model as this section does. The apostasy of Israel, their servitude under the oppressor sent to chastise them, their cry of distress and penitence, their deliverance by the judge raised up to save them, the rest which follows their deliverance. There is an infinite variety in the details of the successive narratives, but they are all formed on the same plan. Israel just can't listen is what he's saying. Be obedient to what I say, even if not doing so will turn out for good. It is not right for you to ever disobey. Be sure that this is perfectly understood. If my word is violated and good comes from that, it is because I ordained that it would be this way. But your disobedience only makes you a brat. Even if good comes from it, you have no right to disobey. Turn from disobedience and always do right. Do not use the excuse that things will turn out okay. That is wickedness in my sight. There is never a time when it is right to disobey. Our second thought today is Othniel, the son of Canaz. It's verses 7 through 11. In Judges 2, 11 through 16, the repetitive cycle of falling away and then being drawn back to the Lord is introduced. Reading them now and then comparing them to what is said in the next five verses will show this pattern. From Judges 2, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hand of, hands of plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Now I'm going to read you the verses from Judges 3, 7 through 11 that we're about to go through. Listen to how similar they are. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Then he sold them into the hand of Cushon Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushon Rishathaim eight years. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel, who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war. And the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. Verse 7. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Rather, 
Vayaasu bene Yisrael et hara bene Yehovah, and did sons Israel the evil in eyes Yehovah. This is the second of eight times the masculine term, the evil, is seen in Judges. Each time it is accompanied by the words, in eyes Yehovah. Thus, the offense is personal in the relationship between the people and the Lord. Verse 7 continues, they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. More precisely, it reads, and forgot Yehovah their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The Baals were described in Judges 2. There is the Baal as the main deity, and then there are the Baals of the individual tribes and clans. Asherahs are based on a nature goddess, companion of Baal found in Phoenicia, Assyria, Canaan, and so on. They are represented by large wooden pillars or images set up in honor of Asherot. Examples can also be found in Judges 2. Verse 8, therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. It is the common phrase indicating the extreme displeasure of the Lord. Vayichar af Yehovah be Yisrael, and burned nostril Yehovah in Israel. It is as if the Lord is standing right there in the midst of his people with his nostrils fuming, smoke pouring out of his nose. Verse 8 continues, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. Vayim kerem beyad kushan rishathaim melech aram naharaim, and sold them in hand, kushan rishathaim king aram naharaim. The name and location are a mouthful. This is the only account where this person is mentioned in scripture. As for the meanings, kushan comes from kush, the area of Ethiopia. Abarim says the meaning of kush is irretrievably obscure. The only real clue to its meaning is found in Jeremiah 13, verse 23, where it says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. The skin of the Ethiopian is black, and so most translate Cush as black. One could argue that's illogical unless the leopard means spots. But this is just what the word namer or leopard means. It comes from an unused root meaning to filtrate and thus to spot or stain as if by dripping. The second half of the name, rishathaim, comes from risha, meaning wickedness. Being a plural, it would mean double wickedness or extra wicked. Taken together, the name would most likely mean black double wickedness. Aram means elevated, high, or citadel. Naharaim comes from Nahar, meaning to flow or stream, and speaks of both water and light that flows. But this is used metaphorically for peoples and nations, such as in Isaiah 2, where it says the nations will stream to Jerusalem. Thus, it means two streams. The whole name, then, would mean elevation or citadel of two streams, be they of water, light, or something else. Verse 8 continues, And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. Bullinger states that as a numeral, eight is the superabundant number. As it is seven plus one, it is the number specially associated with resurrection and regeneration and the beginning of a new era or order. As for Israel's time of service to this guy, verse 9, When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, Vayizaku bene Yisrael el Yehovah, and cried sons Israel, 
unto Jehovah. This is what happened when they were in Egypt, says in Exodus 2. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. They were in bondage. They cried to God. He heard and responded. Under Cushan Rishathaim's oppression, they again cry out to the Lord, and he again responds. Is anybody not seeing the word grace here? We sang all those songs today about grace. People cannot understand that simple word. Five letters. It's one of the most complicated and hard to understand words that any human being can seem to grasp. Grace is grace. Verse 9 continues, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them. More precisely, and raised up Jehovah, Savior, to sons Israel and saves them. In turning back to the Lord and crying out to him, he returned to them and brought about their deliverance. It is what verse 216 said would take place. As for their savior, it is, verse 9 continues, Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. Et Othniel ben Canaz achi Caleb hakatan mimenu. Othniel, son Canaz, brother Caleb, the younger, from him. Othniel, or force of God, was seen in Joshua 15 and in Judges 1. He is noted as the son of Canaz, or hunter. That was explained in Joshua 14 as a name based on a profession, similar to many of our own names. Hence, it is someone who seeks a form of wisdom like any such profession would. He is noted as the younger brother of Caleb, or dog. Thus, he is a Gentile by genealogy. Of him, it next says, verse 10, the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. Vati alav ruach Yehovah vayishpot et Yisrael and became upon him spirit Yehovah and judged Israel. It is a phrase that will be used in Judges, Samuel, and Kings. This is a special marking upon the individual as a divinely appointed judge to relieve the people in their time of need. Of him, it says, verse 10 continues, He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. Rather, it is more precise. And went out to the war, and gave Jehovah in his hand Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, and prevailed his hand over Cushan Rishathaim. Rather than being delivered, it says the Lord gave him into Othniel's hand. The king of Aram was a present being handed over to Othniel. With that, the record of this foe is ended. Because of this event, the next words are stated. Verse 11, so the land had rest 40 years. This refers to the time after Othniel's victory, regardless as to the length of his life. During these years, the land sat quietly and without any further harm from their enemies. 40 is defined by Bollinger as a period of probation, trial, and chastisement. Not judgment, like the number nine, which stands in connection with the punishment of enemies, but the chastisement of sons and of a covenant people. And more, because it relates to enlarged dominion or to renewed or extended rule, then it does so in virtue of its factors four and ten. Four is the number of things that have a beginning, of things that are made of material things and matter itself. It is the number of material completeness. Hence, it is the world number and especially the city number. 10 signifies completeness of order, marking the entire round of anything. Therefore, it is 
the ever-present signification of the number 10. It implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, and that the whole cycle is complete. Whether at the end of this time of peace or at some point prior to it, the next words say, verse 11 finishes with, then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. Rather than then, the text states, and died Othniel, son Canaz. Placing this statement at the end of the account would suggest that he died after the 40 years. However, the words may simply refer to the ending of his life without any connection to the 40 years of peace. Of this and the rest of Judges, Ellicott says, Many questions have been raised, such as, do the 40 years include or exclude the period of servitude? Is 40 meant to be an exact or a general number? Are the various periods of rest and servitude continuous and successive? Or do they refer to different parts of the Holy Land, and do they synchronize? Perhaps no final answer to these questions is as yet possible. And no less than 50 schemes of the chronology of the period of the judges have been attempted, which fact alone proves how insufficient are the data on which to decide. I would disagree with that last thought. The data are not insufficient. Rather, it is our inability to rightly interpret the data that is problematic. Ellicott died in 1905. Since then, many more opinions have arisen, and there is no agreement on most of these points. As for what we are being shown in the first judge, that will be explained next. A plan is being worked out by God. In the stream of time, it unfolds. With each breath we take or step we trod, the watchful eye beholds. There is trouble along the way, but the Lord remains faithful and true. And with each passing day, the mercies of the Lord renew. O Israel, hope in the Lord your God, and know that he has not forgotten you. Someday the Gentiles shall applaud when you to the message of Jesus finally comes through. Our third thought today is explaining Othniel. Othniel is the first judge of Israel. He is the brother of Caleb, the son of Canaz, who has pictured the Gentiles in Joshua and Judges 1. The symbolism remains the same here. Israel is in a time of apostasy, having done evil in the eyes of Jehovah, verse 7. It says, day one forgot him and two served the Baals and Asherahs, in verse 8. That is two evils from Jeremiah 2. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In response, the nostril of the Lord burned in Israel. That's verse 8. It is the continued rejection of the Lord at his coming. Think of Jesus coming. In rejecting Jesus, they have rejected the Lord. Thus, verse 8, he sold Makar them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. As was seen in Judges 2.14, Israel sold Makar themselves to their enemies. That's Isaiah 52, verse 3. The Lord allowed it to happen because of their actions. Thus, it can be said that the Lord sold them. The names then tell what is happening. They are sold into the hand of black double wickedness, king of elevated two streams. During this period, they serve him. In Amos 9, the Lord equates Israel to the people of, guess what? Cush or Ethiopia. 
He says, Amos 9-7, are you not like the people of Ethiopia, Cush, to me, O children of Israel, says the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kerr? This provides the needed meaning. Israel, equated to the Ethiopians, is in a state of double wickedness. The elevated two streams refer to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's found in Jeremiah 31, 31. Even if they are out of God's favor at this time, they remain elevated in his redemptive plans. God has never left Israel. Ever. He never will. G-R-A-C-E. We had to make a song. Okay? It's great. For now, this is the state that they have sold themselves into. I want you to know before I go on, everything that you see in this sermon, they've just rejected Jesus and they are now in a state of black double wickedness. They've rejected the Lord, but they are still two elevated streams. Everything you see until the sermon that I typed on Monday, which is in Judges uh, uh, 6, it all follows this pattern. From here, it goes all the way through. It's amazing. It's amazing. We'll go on. However, the period is for only eight years. It is not a permanent thing. Eight is the superabundant number, and it is associated with resurrection and regeneration. In other words, they will come to accept the resurrected Jesus and be regenerated someday when they cry out to him. That's in verse 9. The verse continues with, and raised up Jehovah, Savior, to sons Israel, and saves them. It speaks of the coming and work of Jesus, including the resurrection that they will accept at that time. It's right out of Joshua chapter 4 and 5. It's repeating these things so we don't miss what God is doing. But that is not something that will come out of the blue, is it? There has to be a means by which they will learn this. Thus, Othniel, force of God, son of Canaz, hunter, Caleb, or dog's younger brother, is introduced here. The Gentile has carried the word of God since Israel rejected Jesus. As explained in both Joshua and Judges 1, Othniel is as a hunter of men in the sense that he is seeking wisdom not only for himself, but for others as well. Therefore, he, Othniel, typifies those who expend themselves in the pursuit of the knowledge of God and in conveying that to others. It is through the Gentiles that the revelation of God in Christ is transmitted back to the Jews. Hence, it says of him in verse 10 that the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. The same terminology was said about Jesus in Isaiah 61 verse 1 and then cited by him in Luke 4.18. The Spirit of God came upon Jesus. That then transfers to those who believe in him. During this dispensation, it is a Gentile-led church. Verse 10 continues, saying that Othniel went out to war, 2 Corinthians 4.10, and so on, and delivered black double wickedness, king of elevated, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over black double wickedness, the message of believing Gentiles is that the Messiah, Jesus, will prevail over the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Romans 10.19 and 11.11 both note that Israel will be provoked to jealousy by the Gentiles. It is true that the Gentiles carry a message first penned by a Jew, but that message was inspired by God. Therefore, it is not an issue to say that this is the message from the Gentiles, whose message is what will prevail over the Jews someday. Othniel is being used in typology to reveal this. From there, the number 40 was given to indicate the rest that Israel received. 
as it is related to enlarged dominion or renewed or extended rule. The factors 4 and 10 indicate that the world, 4, at that time will be in a state where nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. That's Bollinger's commentary. That is seen in the words of Isaiah concerning the millennium. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Is everybody seeing the pattern that's going on here? This is telling what happened and what is coming, and the next sermons that you go through will all be showing that redemptive process in the stream of time, including our time right now. These verses are literally crammed with theology, if thought through point by point to their logical end. One, the law cannot save. We see that right in these verses. Two, Jesus is God, and the church has not replaced Israel. Three, Israel will come to accept Jesus. Four, on and on and on, point after point, the message of the word is validated in typology so that we can know when our thoughts are right or wrong. Paul spoke of our sufficiency being from God in the opening thoughts today. Israel had to learn through war that their trust and sufficiency was to be from God. It is a lesson they have not yet learned, but they will learn it during the greatest war of all time, a war that tragically lies ahead for them and indeed for the entire world. This short story from the book of Judges is given to show us this in advance. Other lessons are yet ahead as we travel through its pages. Let us remember as we read the word that it is all about Jesus. Everything is focused on him or what he is doing in the world for and through his people, Jesus. Praise God for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, I said that this is going to, this is like a snapshot, just like we had Judges 2, which was given, that passage I read earlier in the sermon, is given as a snapshot of the recurring events in the book of Judges. That was a preface, and now we're into where those events keep repeating. This is like an opening of what's coming I don't know when it's going to end, but every single sermon has followed the pattern that's going on right here. And you're not really going to notice it unless you're paying attention or I tell you in advance, which I am doing. And then you watch and you'll see by the time we get to Judges 6 and I go back and explain everything in the order that it's happening, you're going to be, you won't be able to keep your hands down. It is so unbelievable what God is doing in this word. It's unbelievable. And I didn't even know this, believe it or not, until Monday. I'm typing these sermons one after another, not paying attention to the last. And then I thought, I need to go back and review. I started with Othniel, and it is like a tapestry that is being built upon. It is a living word. It is unbelievable. So I hope you'll enjoy it. The fat guy is going down next week. It is a wonderful story. (laughs) We're going to get it explained the week after that, the Lord willing. I tell you, it is just so fun watching how God takes these true, real stories and he turns them into marvelous pictures of Jesus Christ. If you doubt this word, if you doubt that God incarnate came and dwelt among us, I can't help you because this word is so beautiful and the pictures that come out of it again and again are so beautiful. It's, you can't make this stuff up. You hear that all the time. Oh, you can't make that up. You can't make this up. It is just a treasure. So I'll tell you a couple things. We, we spoke about grace or sang about grace. I didn't sing. I, people stone me when I sing. But we sang about grace three songs today. Was that planned? Did you plan it that way? No, you just, I, all three of them were like grace. Even Jim, when he got up here, he says, there's a lot of grace in there. I got to tell you something about grace. I was talking about this earlier and I'll talk about it again. 
Israel. If you want to know a picture of God's grace, which leads to an understanding of the most misunderstood doctrine within the church, it is eternal salvation. Israel has failed the Lord since their inception. At the law of Moses, at the giving of the law of Moses, they have failed him constantly all the way throughout the Old Testament and since the Old Testament all the way through the past 2,000 years. They have rejected the Lord. They have shunned him. They have spurned him. They crucified his son and they did not repent of that. And yet God has been faithful to save them as a people. And he has planted them right back in the land where they are now today. Because if he didn't do that, then it would mean that their salvation is of works and not of grace. That means that your salvation is by grace alone. And you cannot at any point, I'm saved right now in human history, right? Got that? I'm saved right now. At any point after that, until the day I die, if I can lose Mm -hmm. what I have done, then it was never of grace ever. It was never of God's grace. It was always of my effort. God has covenanted. Our unfaithfulness cannot, it is impossible for our unfaithfulness to negate God's faithfulness. And Israel is the standard and the benchmark for us to see that and to understand it. Because if you can lose your salvation, that means that Israel is not the people that belong in the land right now. And we are following the wrong God. Grace is the hardest word for us to understand, but it is right there. It is grace. You don't have to work for it. You cannot lose it. And if you believe you can, you are the one that's living in bondage. You are living in a state of bondage that God wanted to free you from. Jesus Christ did the work. What can you add to that? Thank God for Jesus Christ. He died. He was buried. He went into the grave. That is the gospel. Please believe that simple gospel and then do not mar grace. Accept it freely and live by it all the days of your life. God's grace. Our closing verse comes from Romans 11. I cited it a minute ago. Verses 11 and 12. Here it is. You talk about grace. Undeserving people that have never Not for 30 minutes of their existence have they been faithful to the Lord. I say that truly because there were hearts and minds from the very beginning that did not obey the Lord in their hearts and minds. They did not. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Think of yourself and your salvation. Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. Think of it. When you are translated to heaven, you have walked away from the Lord completely. I don't want anything to do with the Lord anymore. I've had a miserable life, and he hasn't, he hasn't you know, given me a sports car and all the things I want. My wife died, and my cat ran away. Oh, no, that's okay. My dog ran away. <laughs> and you say, I don't want anything to do with him. The day that you're glorified, Think of what he just said about Israel, how much their fullness. You're going to be taken to glory despite your failing him because he has covenanted with you. And that is grace. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Next, and just pay attention to these sermons. Even if you don't come, please watch these sermons if you're not here. They're, they're so beautiful, what is coming. All the, I'm going to tell you what, we're going to get into Ehud next week, two sermons. Then we're going to get into Deborah. Deborah, B is what that means. Think on who she's picturing before we get there. It is 
astonishing. A-H-tonishing. It is unbelievable. Okay? It fits right into what we're seeing. And then after that, we get into the Song of Deborah. It's poetic, Hebrew poetic literature. I was so I was so excited typing those sermons. You're not going to get anything. It's it's just repeating what happened in Judges 4. So you're not going to get typology. But it is so beautiful. I was just literally, my heart was pounding for three sermons. It is that beautiful. Four sermons, maybe. And then we got into four, four sermons. And then we go into um, the introduction to Gideon, which I typed on Monday. And then we're going to get into Gideon. I am next week. And it'll be, what, nine weeks? I, I can't wait. It's just, ah, Unbelievable what God is doing in this book of Judges. Unbelievable. Next week, Judges 3, 12 through 23. The story is good. Yes, a good one to tell because it is so fun. It's entitled Ehud, Judge of Israel. Part one. Thank you, Jay. That'll be our ninth Judges sermon. Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who judges his people according to their deeds. So follow him, live for him, and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Now, I got a question for you, and I will admit, this is a tough one. This, but uh, it's not because I'm giving away anything special. I'm giving away a car today, or I could give away the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, apple butter that I gave. I, I'm not saying nothing special. They're special, but that's not the point why I'm doing this. It's because the surrounding words, I could have gotten about four questions out of here. And you're going to think of those questions when I read you this. It's too easy. So I had to make it hard because the surrounding questions are too easy. So, and this is going to be really tough, but if you read this in the past week, you will get it. When Herod was struck by an angel of the Lord, see, I could ask that. Who struck Herod, right? I didn't. Too easy. When Herod was struck by an angel of the Lord, he was eaten by worms and died. I could ask that, but too easy. However, the very next words give a contrast to that. Herod was struck by, struck by the Lord, uh, and he was eaten by worms and died, but come on, it's something that I harp on you all day, every day. The word of God grew and multiplied. I know that was hard, but I was so excited to try that one. <laughs> Nobody read Judges chapter uh, 12, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 12 today, but do you think, do you see the contrast that he's given us? This guy is not giving glory to God, but the word of God grew and multiplied. And that is what we're seeing right here with the Gentile-led church growing and multiplying. And you're going to see that in the sermons to come. It's unbelievable. I'm sorry you didn't get that race car from uh, the Elfers. This is a uh, uh, Matt and Debbie Hayes 1988 Pro Sport Street Thunderbird. It'll have to go next week. Sorry, guys. All right. I got a poem and we'll be done. This is Othniel, Israel's first judge. Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel, a point not to omit, might be taught to know war, at least those who had formerly not known it. Namely, five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and there were a lot, and the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamat. And they were left that he might test Israel by them, to know whether they would obey and be smelling like roses the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. 
Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, yes, those ites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives, giving approval nods, and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and served the Baals and the Asherahs, giving false gods an approval nod. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushon Rishathaim. There were many tears, king of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served Cushon Rishathaim eight years. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel, who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. They had a relief for a spell. The spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel, he went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim, that bad dude, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. Yes, he was subdued. The land had rest for 40 years, a good long ride. Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the wonderful blessings of this life. Thank you for your word. It's such a sacred and precious gift that you've given us, and we neglect it. We malign it. We tear it apart. We uh, treat it as if it's something common instead of something that is holy and pure. Forgive us for that as a people, Lord. Turn this nation and this world back to you. I know that's unlikely at this point in time, but that would be my prayer anyway, is that there would be a revival and people would want to cling to this word with all of their hearts and souls. But whatever happens, Lord, we know that we're yours because of what Jesus has done. And this word tells us of Jesus, and so we call to him and we ask for his favor in the week ahead, for blessings upon those who are his and for conversion of those who are not. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for what you've done. And we praise you and we do so in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. I mentioned that today is Sergio's birthday. Okay, sorry, he's sick and he's not here. And uh, so if you have his email, send him an email and bother him because I'm sure that's exactly what he wants is 8,000 emails saying happy birthday when he's not feeling well. Um, so um, today is his birthday. But there's something that happened on October 6th that I did not know because he was gone. He was gone. And now he's here. It's on October 6th of 2023, Dr. Bridges turned 90 years old. Yeah. So make sure you give him a hug and uh, congratulate him on that. And we had some pizza for him on Thursday night. But uh, congratulations. It's a great it, He caught up with my dad now because my dad is 90. And so uh, doctor is 90 and they can go out and play in the sandbox together. <laughs> okay.